0: Thanks, Bill, thanks, man. Well, good morning. How is everybody? Everybody's good. good. All right. Brought your thinking caps, I hope, So we're going to wade out into the deep water this morning. All right. So uh, uh, we don't always get to do that. Uh, some sermons challenge us a little more than others do. As I was reflecting on what I wanted to share with you this morning, um, and then when I started reading through it a little bit uh, during the week, uh, I became very aware that we were asking—I was asking you—to uh, join me this morning in, in wading out into the deep water a little bit. So hope you have some paper, you're ready to take a little notes, Uh, and we're going to have a good time this morning as we gather around the book of Galatians uh, chapter 2, looking at verses 15 through 21. And I invite you to go ahead and turn there if you would, Uh, that way you'll have it available to you. Uh, We're going to read that here in a little while, Uh, not quite yet, but we'll get there here in just a couple of minutes. Uh, Galatians chapter 2, verses 15 through 21. By way of introduction, I want to share a story with you. It was considered one of the most audacious artistic achievements of its time. It took six years of excruciatingly detailed planning, numerous trips to New York City, the involvement of numerous friends and colleagues to pull off what he wanted to do. He almost decided not to do it. And at the very last moment, he got some fresh encouragement and decided to go forward with the act. And on August the 7th, 1974, after a final evening of planning and setting everything up, at 7 o'clock in the morning, Philippe Petit from France stepped out onto a six-inch cable between the two World Trade Center towers and proceeded to, in the words of one of the police officers who was there, who described it, dance on a high wire, not once, but eight times traversing between the towers uh, over the course of about 40 minutes. One of the police officers there described it this way. He said, I observed the tightrope dancer, because you couldn't really call him a walker, approximately halfway between the two towers. And upon seeing us, he started to smile and laugh. And he started going into a dancing routine on the high wire. And when he got to the building, we asked him to get off the high wire. But instead, he turned around and ran back to the midway point on the wire and continued to do it again and again. He was bouncing up and down. His feet actually left the wire and then he would resettle back on the wire again. And an in incredible understatement, unbelievable really, everybody was spellbound in the watching of it. The question I have is: I look at that story, it's a phenomenal story, it's been documented, there's all kinds of footage you can see on it. It's one of the most uh, incredible stories of the last probably 50 years or so, the, 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 the feat that this man did on the high wire there between the two World Trade Centers. The question I have is, when did faith begin for him? All right, that's the question I really want us to kind of think about and kind of keep in the back of our minds this morning, just kind of use this as an illustration as we go. When did faith begin? Did it begin when he started planning six years out from going out onto the wire? Or when the wire was strung across the expanse? And some of us may wonder how he got it across and this may make the defeat even more astounding. It was shot across by bow and arrow. Um, they simply shot it across and then somebody on the other side hooked it. Um, and it, so it was a very instantaneous thing. It wasn't pre-planned. It just shot it across, hooked it, and he started walking across. Is that when it started, when it, when it went across? Or maybe when he got dressed for the occasion? Or was it when he hefted the 55-pound balance bar and then began to actually walk? on the wire and was it when he maybe took the first step out on the wire some thirteen hundred and seventy feet above the ground is that when faith started and that's what I want us to kind of think about this morning what is faith when did faith express itself when did at what point did he have faith That he would be able to achieve what he wanted to do. Because he certainly had no, I mean, he certainly was clearly convicted that he could do it, or he never would have set foot out there to start to do it. But at what point does faith come into play? And in what did he have faith? Did he have faith in himself? Did he have faith in his co conspirators? Um, Did he have faith in the wire? Where was this faith placed? We want to talk about faith this morning. That's the topic before us. And you may think, well, that's a pretty simple topic. How are we going to get into the deep water on this one? And I think you'll see that we can, we can do that. Uh, we'll manage to pull that off pretty well. Uh, so I invite you to join me as we study this together. It's George Michael saying back in 1987, said, you got to have faith. And that's true, brothers and sisters, we do. You have to have faith. You would, but without faith, no man can see God. The scriptures tell us that. They're very clear on that. Without faith, no one can see God. And most, if not all people, live their lives with faith in something. We have faith in something. Some of us, it's our jobs. Some of us, it's our morality. Some of us, it's our families. Some of us, it's our husbands, our wives, our children. Some of it's our church. There are all kinds of things in which we place our faith. And I would submit to you that every one of those things I just listed is faith wrongly placed. Because that is not the faith that will get us to where we want to be. What role does faith play in our lives as believers? What has it done for us? What is it doing for us? What will it do for us as we look even into the future with regard to faith? And how should we think about faith and the function that it plays in our lives and in the role that it has in our lives as members of the human race? And this kind of brings us to our text this morning, Galatians chapter 2. Um, if you go back into the earlier verses, and we will not have time to do this this morning, you will discover that Peter and Paul are having a confrontation. And it's a very public confrontation. Paul has confronted Peter publicly um, regarding something that, Paul, that Peter has done that Paul thinks actually puts the very gospel at stake. And because of that, Paul, if I get these names mixed up, forgive me for that, it's not my fault they both start with P. All right, but uh, so forgive me for that if I get them mixed up. But uh, you will see in the story that, that that's what's happening. They have this very public confrontation. And what we have here in verses 15 through 21 is really a continuation of that story. It's almost a summary of that story. So when Paul's talking about we here, that's the we he has in view, is Peter and Paul. He, those are the we that he kind of has in view here. Um, and Paul, being the master rhetorician that he is, begins to build an argument that will then propel him into really the rest of the book of Galatians. Um, And we will obviously not have time to do all of that this morning. I took about a year uh, to preach through Galatians uh, back when I was in Germany a couple of years ago. So um, we obviously will not have time to do that today. Um, So we're going to look here at just a very small section of the passage. And so with that little bit of an introduction, let's let's stand together as we read from the book of Galatians, chapter 2, verses 15 through 21. I like to stand as we read scripture, so let's stand if you would join me. And Paul writes, he says, We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. May God bless the reading of his word and guide us as we study it together this morning. Thank you so much, guys. You can have a seat as we look together this morning at three aspects of faith that kind of unfold in these few verses here. We're going to look together at three aspects of faith I do have lots of subpoints. I did not put the subpoints on the slides because it would have been terribly confusing. So just bear with me, and I think we'll be all right together as we, as we go through this, all right? So the first thing I want to look at, the first aspect of faith that we see very clearly in this text is the superiority of faith. And I would add to that superiority over the law. Because what Paul is doing here, and he does throughout the book of Galatians, is he's contrasting the law and the gospel. And he's contrasting those two things, and he says that faith is superior to the law. If We have here the superiority of faith. Let's look together again at verses 15 through 16. And Paul writes, We ourselves, and the ourselves there are Peter and Paul. We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one, which is a very emphatic term, will be justified. No one will be justified by works of the law. And so the first thing we have to do is unpack a word, and that word is justification, all right. We have to deal with that because it's here in the text, and because it's in the text, we have to deal with it. And as because we are in the 21st century and sometime divorced from the first century, um, we want to make sure that we mean the same thing that they meant when they <laughs> when they used the word justified. Because quite honestly, we have gotten this word really confused um, in our culture today to some degree. So let's talk about justification. What is it? Um, and I want to quickly give you four points um these will be subpoints under the first point for the slide guys up top so we're not ready for the second second one yet but um four four things that I'm, that, he, that we see here when we're talking about this idea of justification because i want to suggest to you brothers and sisters this is a glorious word and i think sometimes we encounter it and we just kind of keep on going instead of stopping and really meditating and pondering the incredible thing that god has done for us in christ by justifying us So I think it's worth our time to stop and look at that a little bit. So the first thing I want to say about justification is it is an instantaneous act of God on our behalf, on the behalf of new believers. It is a declaration concerning the one who has now followed Christ in repentance and in belief. It's something that God simply says now about us that he didn't say about us before. Before we were not justified and in a moment, just like that, we suddenly stand justified by declaration of God, in the presence of God, and we are declared righteous based on nothing that we've done in ourselves. That is an incredible, glorious thought, brothers and sisters. In itself, we could stop there, but we won't, but we could stop there, and we could ponder that for a while. But what does it mean? What is it exactly is declared concerning the person? Which brings us to the second thing I want to say about justification. The first thing that is declared concerning this new person, this new follower of Christ, is And let this sink in full forgiveness of sins. Full forgiveness of sins. Past sins wiped away. Present sins wiped away. Future sins dealt with in Christ. We now, brothers and sisters, because of God's justification of us, we right now in this moment stand before God righteous. Not because of anything in us, but because solely of what Christ has done on our behalf. And God in justification applies that to us and basically clears our account. Third thing, he declares us righteous on the basis of Christ, which I just talked about. His righteousness is imparted to us. This is why the sinless life of Christ is so critical. Because without the sinless life of Christ, if Christ had only come and then immediately died and then went back to heaven, there would be no righteousness to impart. All right? But we had to have that sinless life. And so he lived 30 years or so, and he lived a perfectly sinless life. And that sinlessness is what is granted to us. He He essentially earned that on our behalf, if I can put it that way. So that's what we now have. We stand. That's an incredible thought that you and I, brothers and sisters in Christ, now stand fully and completely righteous in the presence of a holy God on the basis of Christ's righteousness. And the fourth thing, and this is what brings us back to faith, it is God's response to faith. We have faith. God responds to that faith by imparting to us justification. All right, So it's God's response to faith. There is an order of events here. It's not just random acts on the part of God. All right, There is an order of things. Things happen in a very orderly way. You'll notice this in Paul, and this is just by way of just an instruction on how to read Paul from time to time. The little tiny words matter a lot in Paul. Don't just gloss the little tiny words and go to the big words like Jesus and church and Christ and husband and wife. Look at all those little tiny connectors, because those little tiny connectors are hugely important when you read Paul. All right, so let's go back to that, because what he says is that this is God's response to faith. He says, we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith. Faith is what accomplishes justification on our part. I told you we're going out into the deep water a little bit, all right? So bear with me. We'll we'll get through this together, all right? So to sum it all up, if I was going to give you just a a quick definition, if someone were to walk up to you on the street this afternoon and say, they won't do this, but, you know, if they were, you know, what does justification mean? Here's your quick definition, all right? You won't be able to write this down. It's too long. but, uh, But here's your quick definition as to what you could say. Justification is God's instantaneous response to believing faith in which he declares all of my sins past, present, and future, forgiven, and in which he imparts Christ's righteousness to me so that when I stand before God, I stand as one fully forgiven and perfectly righteous. That's awesome. That's truly awesome. That that is what's true of us as believers in Christ right now and this very moment. And you may say, well, I don't feel terribly righteous. I don't either. And that's okay. We just lay claim to it because God says that's what's true of us in Christ. That's what's true of us in Christ. But why does any of that matter? Right? This just sounds terribly complicated. Can't we just, you know, sing kumbaya and move on with the day? Um, no, because this is really that important. You know, why Why does this matter? And I, I would suggest to you that it matters because this is what almost every religious group out there is trying to attain. They're all trying to attain. Justification, they're trying to stand right standing before God in some way. All right? They're all trying to do that. Muslims are trying to do that. Mormons are trying to do that. Jews are trying to do that. Christians are trying to do that. And Paul here basically is just looking at the Jews and the Gentiles in this whole equation. But we could expand that out even more if we wanted to. But he says it matters because this is what you're trying to get to. And there's only one way you can get there. And so it matters because if you're trying to do it in a way that won't get you there, we call that spinning your wheels. Right, And he says you're just wasting your time. You're giving all of your effort to something that will not accomplish anything. So it does matter. It absolutely does matter. And for our purposes this morning, Paul basically is breaking this down in one of two ways. He says we're either going to gain justification by earning it by our works, or we're going to get it by receiving it by faith. He says the Jews are trying to do it by earning it by their works. And we as believers are trying to do it by receiving it through faith. Those two paths do not lead the same way. All right? Those two things don't get you to the same destination. And that's an important thing for us to stop and put the brakes on for just a minute and think about because there are many, many, many people out there, many people claiming the name of Christ who are trying to do it by behaving well. And behaving well will not earn you heaven. The only thing, the only thing that will earn heaven for any of us here this morning, anybody out there in the whole world around us, is putting their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. That's it. That's it. That's the only way that that can be accomplished. So we come back to our text, and we see how Paul begins to unpack this. Paul is still essentially talking about this conversation that he's he's having with Peter, and it's important to keep that in the back of our heads. And the first thing Paul says is, Peter, you and I, we're Jews by birth. We were born in a privileged position. And we would acknowledge that, right? I mean, we would acknowledge that as Jews at that point in time, they were born into a privileged position. And he says, we were born into a privileged position. We had everything going for us, and yet you and I figured out that we needed something beyond that. And that's what he's saying here. We figured out that we needed something beyond that. We needed something beyond what the law could do for us. We recognized that in spite of all of our advantages, that we recognized our need for something beyond what the law could supply for us. We recognized that we needed that. And the contrast here is between theologically advantaged Jews and pagan Gentiles who had none of those advantages. And Paul continues, in spite of these things, we know that a person is not justified by works, but through faith in Christ. And the word no here is emphatic. It's this kind of a word, no. If you look out the window and it's raining, which it's been doing a lot lately, I wish it would stop, quite frankly. (laughs) I'd like to see a little bit of sunshine. But if you look out the window and it's raining and you say, I know that it is raining outside, that's the way Paul is using no here. It's that emphatic. It's a statement of fact. We know that we needed something beyond the law. We know it in that way. It's an emphatic kind of way. And we've recognized that the law is insufficient for salvation. We needed something beyond the law and that something was faith in Jesus Christ. Keeping the law is insufficient for salvation. And we're going to talk about this a little more in a minute, but I will stop there and say that's why they had all those sacrifices. Alright? <laughs> because even they, even God recognized there was no way they could do it There was no way they could do it. That's why they needed all the sacrifices, so they could keep going to God and asking for forgiveness for every time they failed at it. All right? So there was no way they could do it. There was no way that could be accomplished. So, Peter, we both know that even though we're Jews by birth, that the only true way to attain justification is by faith in Jesus Christ. And this brings us to kind of the key question of the day, and that question is, which we haven't talked about yet, well, what is faith? How do I know if I have it? And how do I know if I've been doing anything with it? And how do, I, how do I know? So what is it? How will I recognize it when I see it? And I would suggest to you that scripturally we see three things that have to be present. All three of these things, by the way, must be present in order for true faith to be there. Three things. The first of those is knowledge. There's something we must know. That's why we have the scripture, so that we can know things. That's why you and I, by the way, brothers and sisters, are called to go to the mission field. Because there are people out there who don't know things, and they need to hear those things. Because unless they hear those things, they cannot have faith. So you and I are called to take that message to people who need to hear that message. So that they can then respond in faith. Because without the knowledge, they have nothing to believe in we must know who christ is we must know what he has done we must know what he is able to do and as paul writes to the church in rome faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of god and the sad reality is that even in the 21st century we've been around for a really really long time and we still have cultures out there who have not a word of scripture in their language and if this is true and it is then you and I have a lot to be praying about. That the word of God might be translated. That's why I'm so grateful for groups like the Wycliffe Bible Translators who are doing such a marvelous job of, in some cases, creating languages so that they they can then translate into those languages so that the people can have, because a lot of these cultures don't even have written languages at all. So we must know some things. Secondly, we must be convicted about those things. We must really believe that those things are true. Because I can know things and then just kind of, well, I just, I just that's not a big deal. You know, I, I, I know that the ground is there and I just walk on it. We're convicted that it'll work, right? So we have convictions about those things. And thirdly, and this one is very important, also there must be trust. There must be trust present. All right, so we have knowledge, we have conviction, we have trust. Have I personalized my convictions? Have I owned them and have those things that I have convictions about and trusted in changed my life so that I can demonstrate that I now own those convictions. We put it back in the illustration that we started off with this morning. Philippe Petit love that name he knew that the wire would hold him up he was convicted that he could get across but faith did not start for Philippe Petit until he stuck his foot out there on the wire because that's when trust came into play All right, And for you and I, we can have all the knowledge in the world. We can be convicted that those things are true. But until we have stepped out into those things, we do not have biblical faith. So, brothers and sisters, the question we have to ask ourselves this morning is, do I have that kind of faith? Have I trusted in that way? Have I stepped out onto the wire, so to speak? Or am I only just resting in the fact that I know certain things? You know what James says about that? The devil knows a lot of things. The devil is even convicted that those things are true. But the devil has not trusted. Right? Even the demons believe and tremble. They have not trusted. We have to be very careful, do we not, that we're moving forward in the right way here. And then there's, there's a third level, and we have to quickly move through this first point, because we're still on point number one. And <laughs> I promise point number two is, and point number three are much, much shorter. Uh, but he does establish trajectory, and he continues to go on. So he, has, he does one other thing for us here. Because we have to ask, well, how does one arrive at that justification? Well, he gets there by faith, but Paul doesn't stop there. Paul adds another layer, and because Paul adds another layer, we too have to go that extra step. And let me kind of pack up and, and kind of explain it this way. Um, justification is the goal faith is how we get there all right faith is how we get there but there's something that must precede faith and paul makes that clear in verse 16 let's read together verse 16 he says yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law but through faith in jesus christ so therefore that's how the the, the, so there should be understood we also have believed so there's another word here the word is belief we have believed What came first, chicken or the egg? What came first, faith or justification or belief? And Paul says there's an order to things here. There's an order in which these things play themselves out. Think about it this way. Faith is necessary, but that does not necessarily mean that faith is available. Can I say that one more time? Faith is necessary... But that does not necessarily mean that faith is available. Think about it this way. We have a lot of folks here who are in school or who've been to school or who work at school or have done things with school. So this will make sense to you guys. All right? I know that I need, I've done this already, most of us, I need to graduate. But that does not necessarily mean the grades are available to achieve that end. Right? Some of us say amen. Amen. All right, <laughs> some of us are still trying to achieve those grades that we need. That's what I'm talking about. You know, graduation is what we need, but the grades may not be available. Just faith is what we need, but that, the justification is what we need, but the faith may not be available for us to do that. How does that come about? It comes about by belief. That's what Paul says here. Jesus talks about this with Nicodemus. Uh, he goes into a very lengthy conversation in the third chapter of the Gospel of John. Nicodemus comes. You know, this to kind of give you some background, he comes with a very anemic question. If you go back to John chapter three, and Jesus picks up on what's really going on in the life of Nicodemus, answers a question that Nicodemus didn't ask. Um, you and I sometimes do that in conversations. We give people what what they really need to hear, not necessarily what they're asking us about. Um, and that's exactly what what Jesus does here. Um, he comes with a question. Jesus doesn't answer it. He says. Uh, and, even, and he asks and tells him that unless a person is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Jesus is not commanding us to be born again, all right, <laughs> in this text. This is not a command verse. He's not saying, you know, you go and get yourself born again. It's very clear, because Nicodemus, and very clear Nicodemus understands that because Nicodemus is like, how am I supposed to do that? And the, the clear answer to that is you cannot do that. What Jesus is describing here is not a command. He's stating a fact. He's saying that unless you are born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. Unless that is achieved in your life, you cannot cannot see, you cannot enter into the kingdom of God. And Jesus makes it very clear that the new birth, which is the context of what unfolds here, is necessary if belief is to happen. So Jesus says in the most famous verse probably in the Bible, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Well, who believes? The person who is reborn is the person who believes. The person who is reborn. And who is reborn? The person that God graciously and mercifully regenerates according to the gift of grace. And the person then believes faith is implanted in them. And then because that faith is implanted, they respond to God in such a way that God justifies them. So what came first, the chicken or the egg? Belief came first. Faith followed. And the result of that was justification. That's our theological lesson for the day. All right? So... Belief came first, faith followed, and then God God responds by justifying us in the presence of God. That's what we see, and that's the order of things as we see them unfold here in our passage this morning. Number two, I told you we'd get there, and the second and third one will go much more quickly. Number two, he talks about the function of the law. The function of the law in verses 17 through 19. Because he talked about faith and now Paul recognizes that he could have gotten himself in a little bit of a conundrum. And so he wants to talk about the law. Because our response could be, well, if if faith is all that matters, then I don't really need to behave. And so that's what Paul addresses here. Paul would say, absolutely not. So let's look at verses 17 through 19 quickly. But if our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. And like we've already acknowledged here, Paul finds himself perhaps in a little bit of a pickle. I don't think Paul sees it that way, but he goes ahead and acknowledges what he senses could come about on the part of the Galatians. And that is, um, in a world where morality is front and center, how do you present a gospel like the one that Paul is presenting? If morality is really all that important, and in this culture it was hugely important, then how do you present a gospel like what Paul is doing? Because Paul is saying the gospel is superior to obedience to the law. Well, so if that's true, then naturally, being natural human beings, we would then say, well, then I must not need to follow the law at all because God's already done it for me. All my sins, past, present, and future forgiven. Let's just eat, drink, and be happy, and we'll have a good time. And Paul says, absolutely not. Absolutely not. We do have to understand the function of the law. Um, Paul reasons here. He says, it is those very things that caused me to recognize my need for Christ in the first place. It's because I rightly understood the law that I saw my need for God. Which brings us to the question, well, what is the function of the law? I'm going to talk about this very quickly because our heads are probably about to blow up now. So um, I'm going to do this pretty quickly for us. The function of the law, and I've already hinted at this just a minute ago, the function of the law is not to give me a moral standard to live by. It does that, but that's not what it's there for. You say, well, what is it there for? The purpose of the law is to help me understand my utter helplessness and my utter need for God. That's why we have all those sacrifices and all those offerings and all that stuff that keeps happening. I mean, you have chapters and chapters and chapters do you not those of us who've read the bible through we know when you get to leviticus and to deuteronomy it's virtually unreadable because it's like what is going on with all these birds and what is all, what is going on with all these offerings and all these sacrifices and it was because god put those things in place because he recognized that there was no way the people could do it there was no way So the function of the law was to show me my helplessness before God and that was very evident for the Jew because they kept going to the temple and kept making sacrifices. All the time they were making sacrifices. All the time they were making offerings. And every time they're doing it go, well I messed up again, well I messed up again, well I messed up again and I keep messing up. Why do I keep messing up? What's going to happen? How can I get past that? Because clearly I can't keep the law. The whole function of it was to show me that that was absolutely true. I can't keep it. I need someone who can keep it for me. And that's what Christ did. And the law makes us aware of that. And so we respond to the law and we respect the law in that way. He says the law kills us in order that we might live to God. The purpose of the law is to get my eyes off of me and to move them on to God. That's how we should rightly understand The law, as we have it unfolding there in the Old Testament. If God gave the law like we've already talked about, and I thought that I could really keep the law, then why make all those provisions for all those offerings and all those sacrifices? Remember that the law came from God, so he's the one who made all those provisions for all those sacrifices and all those offerings. Because he realized there was no way people could do it. And Paul is essentially saying here, the purpose of the law is to point me to my overwhelming need for Christ. And that's where the Pharisees had so messed it up. Because they just kept adding layer and layer and layer and layer onto the law. As if to say, you know, we just need to live better. We need to live better. We need to be better. We need to do better. And Jesus is saying all the time, no, you need to surrender. And follow me. Which brings us to the third point we have this morning and when we will close. So what does the life of faith look like? How do I know if I'm living it? So this is the application part, if we can call it that way. What does the life of faith look like? And we see in verses 20 and 21 um, four clear markers of that. Let's read these verses together and we'll move through this quickly. He says, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. So what does the life of faith look like contrasted with the life of adherence to the law? And like I said, this is kind of the application part today. So I want to really give you four things before we close. How do I know if I'm living this way? How do I know if I'm I'm bearing this out in my life? And Paul lays out for us four things. The first thing is the most difficult, death. Death. Have we died to self and lived to God? Have we have we died? The very first thing Paul says is, I have been crucified with Christ. Crucifixion is one of those things we kind of lose sight of it in the 21st century, and I'm not going to go into detail on it right now, but, but any first century Jew who heard or, or a pagan Gentile for that matter who, who heard the word crucifixion would understand that meant death. That's what was in view, because nobody got crucified that did not die. Ever. They were very professional at what they did, all right? They knew that when a person was up there, at that point that person died, they knew that that person was dead. So this is an invitation. Paul says the very first thing we have to do if we're going to live the life of faith is we have to die. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, writing in his book, The Cost of Discipleship, writes that when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. And that's exactly right. That is what Christ has called us to do. But death means giving up control. Death means giving up ownership. Death means giving up leadership. It means total surrender. It's the ultimate picture of trust, is it not? How do we come to faith in Christ? We die. Well, if I die, that means I have to give up something. And I may not feel good about that. And that's when Jesus says, trust me. And to what degree do we do that? And so Paul writes elsewhere in Romans chapter 6, verses 5 through 70. He says, We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that, when we would no, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. Have you died? We sing, I surrender all. That's what's in view. Have we given up complete control? of our lives, so that God might lead us and take us wherever he might choose to do. That's difficult. That's very difficult. The second thing he says here, after he says that we have to die, he says we also have to love. Um, we love. We love. The second marker we see here is that, for if Christ is alive in us, then his life is expressed in us. And Paul writes that his life, the life of Christ, was marked by a sacrificial love. And so that will also be present in us. Jesus commands his disciples, this is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. And in John chapter 15, verse 12, and Paul echoes that very similarly when he writes in Romans chapter 12, verse 10, love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing love. I love that verse. Outdo one another in showing love. And thirdly, giving. We die, we love, giving. The love Christ had for us is expressed in giving, and the same should be evident in our lives. So as believers, we seek to, to outdo each other in this regard, you know, to, to, to give, to give, to give. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 2, Walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. Ephesians five twenty-five: Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. And fourthly and finally, in grace, in grace, we die, we, we love, we give, we live a life of grace. We're called to live out of the abundance of the grace of God. That's what we're called to do, and sh- that He has showered on us by making us believers in Christ. That grace should motivate us. That grace should sustain us. That grace should move us to die and to love and to give. Not the burden of the law, but the incredible graciousness of Christ on behalf of us as sinners i'll close with an illustration and then we'll hey not too bad in 2006 i had the chance to go to ireland and if you've ever been if you've not had a chance to go to ireland i highly recommend it it's one of the most incredible vacations i've ever taken it was a, a highlight of my life was the opportunity i had to go there and um if you ever make the trip to ireland it's definitely worth a side trip to go up to the cliffs of moore um the Cliffs of Moher are, are amazing. They just tower above the sea uh, down below. It's right there on the coast. Um, and because it's Europe and they're not nearly as concerned with safety regulations <laughs> as we in America tend to be, you can walk right out to the very edge. You know, There's no fence. There's no nothing there. You can just go right out to the very edge of this thing. And, and at their highest point, they're about 700 feet above the water down below. Um, I will confess that I am a scaredy cat at heart. And I laid down on my belly about four feet from the edge and crawled out to the edge and looked over the side. And that was the way that I got out there because I'm like, there's no way I'm walking out there to the edge of that. And, um, you know, but it's amazing. I mean, you have these incredible cliffs that there. And, and if I was there with you this morning and we were standing there and I began, you know, we're looking out there and we're standing there. and We, we hear the crashing of the water and you see the, the swirl of the birds uh, down below because they're actually below where you are up there on the, uh, on the cliff. And I looked at you, and I said, you know, there's a man at the bottom. And we started talking about the man at the bottom, so that you became convicted that he was really there. And I began to tell you all about this man at the bottom, so that you had real knowledge of him, and you became convicted that he was there. And I said, you know what? If you'll jump off, he'll catch you. And at this point, you have real knowledge about the man, and you really believe he's down there because I've, I've told it in such a way. I mean, it's far. You can't really see him down there, but you, know, but you really believe he's down there. And, and I tell you, you, know, not only can he catch you, he, he wants to. He's in the perfect position to catch you down there. And if you'll just jump off, he'll catch you. It's a very difficult illustration because I don't want us to think about it in terms of the leap of faith because I don't believe that faith is that. I believe faith is actually based on knowledge and trust and conviction. It's not just a leap into nothing. But at the same time, I think this illustration works because what we're called to do is jump. You know, And we're called to jump into the arms of someone that we can't physically see, but we know he's there, and we're convicted that he's real, and we trust. And that trust takes place in the moment that we jump. And when we jump, we will die. Either because, (laughs) either because I was wrong and there's really nobody down there, or or because life just fundamentally changed because you took a leap off a cliff and were caught by a man at the bottom, and that changes things. I work at Red Ventures in Fort Mill, and uh, the CEO of our company. Some of you remember a couple of years ago when the plane went down in the Hudson. Um, And all the people on the plane survived. My CEO was on that plane. Um, And if you're familiar with the TED Talks, you can go on YouTube and see TED Talks. And he actually does. He's not a believer. He's still not a believer, so I'm not suggesting that he is. But he does talk about how that experience fundamentally changed how he looks at life. Because when you have a moment like that, it will change things for you. And that's what the invitation is to come to Christ. To be changed. To walk by faith not by sight, to walk in trust, to walk in conviction, to walk knowing that he will lead us where he would take us to go. It's a simple request, isn't it? Jump. Paul writes this in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. He says, But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews, folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God, for the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Wonder where we are this morning as we consider where we are in the context of the story as it's unfolded for us today. Are we still standing at the edge? Are we still listening to the voices around us and gaining knowledge? Have we become convicted about those things, or have we actually at this point in our lives fully stepped out in trust? The invitation before us this morning is to trust. Because unless that trust element is there, then we truly don't have faith in the way that the Bible describes it. And what God calls us to is a life of faith. Have we trusted? Have we taken that step? If you have, praise God. Praise God this morning. That's awesome. You stand before God truly justified, truly forgiven of all your sins, past, present, and future. If you have not, that's the invitation that is spread for you this morning. It's there. Just reach out and take it. Reach out and take it. And jump. Let's pray. Father God, thank you so much for today. Thank you for the opportunity we've had to open up your word and to study. Father, thank you for guiding us as we have dug into your scriptures today, Lord. And Father, I pray that you might uh, allow us time uh, today and tomorrow and throughout the week to, to just reflect on where we are in the context of these things, Lord. Father, where we stand. Father, do we, do we have knowledge of you? Are we convicted about those things? Have we trusted in you? And have we placed our lives in your hands in total surrender to whatever you would have for us, God? Father, that's your call to us. That's what it means to be a follower of Christ, to be, to be crucified with Christ so that we no longer live, but you live in us and through us, guiding us by your hand. Father, I pray that we would trust you that way. I pray that we might experience a life of faith. For those of us who have, we praise you, God. For those of us here who this morning, who have not yet done that, I pray that you might awaken in them a faith and plant belief, Father, rebirth, Father, so that they might follow after you. We pray that in Jesus' name, amen.